there's a digression here which actually comes later in the discourse but I'm going to go to it now because it fits in exactly to what I've talked about last night and uh, I find it useful to use this digression now so in other words instead of having the next condition and cause the Buddha talks about considerations of self and he talks about it at the end when he finishes with all the conditions they depend arising but I'll put it in right here because it's interesting the considerations of self and he says like this in what ways Ananda does one considering the idea of self consider it one considers the idea of self either feeling as self saying feeling is myself or one considers feeling is not myself myself is without experience of feeling or one considers feeling is not myself but myself is not without experience of feeling myself feels for myself is subject to feeling this is by the way a typical Indian way of putting together all the different possibilities yes no maybe and with doing that the Buddha comes to the um, end of all possibilities that one can look at and this is why this is done quite often in debates like that this was a typical way of debating whether one looks at it this way or that way so what he's saying here actually is giving three different possibilities he's saying that we can look at feeling as self we can also look at the self the me distinct from but subject to feeling and we can look at self without feeling if we for instance take it for granted that we cannot say the feeling is self then maybe we would like to come to that third possibility but before we come to these three possibilities this is how he starts out and he then goes on to take the whole issue at absurdum all of it whatever is any possibility of that all of it doesn't work and he tells why so we'll have a look at why and then we'll distinguish between the three the first thing he looks at is that there are three kinds of feelings I've mentioned them several times already the three kinds of feelings are pleasant painful or neutral now if we say the feeling is mine which is what we do we don't say the feeling is self it sounds absurd everybody's going to say no 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 feeling is not self but the feeling is mine so then which one do we consider do we consider pleasant painful or neutral well obviously all three so since we say the feeling is mine 
It has to be mine and nobody else's. And since we say like that, and not only say, but think and feel like that, we also think and feel that we need to react to it. And this is why the Buddha has picked out feeling out of the four mental aggregates as the one to distinguish this from self and not self because it is at the threshold. It is due to contact, which I talked about last night, sense contact, and it creates craving. So at that point, which I mentioned to you, we have a possibility of stepping out. If we no longer dislike the unpleasant or no longer crave for the pleasant, we have a way of stepping out. However, there is a reason why we can't do that. Because if we, had, if we could do it, we'd all do it. Because we'd save ourselves a lot of trouble. We'd save ourselves a lot of problems. Nothing would be a problem. So it's unpleasant, so what? So it's pleasant, so what? No problems. But we can't do it. And the reason we can't do it is because we think the feeling has arisen due to the fact that I am there, that it is connected to this self-identity. And if we find somebody who we can blame for arousing that feeling of unpleasantness in us, we will certainly do so. And we will probably dislike that person either a little, a lot, or forever. And if we can find somebody who arouses a pleasant feeling in us, then we will also think that that is due to that person, whatever kind of pleasant feeling they are arousing, and we want to grab him or her and keep him or her. And since either way creates problems, one problem after another, the whole mind full of problem, and the more we grab and the more we resist, the more problem, the less meditation, if we could let go, we would. But we don't let go because we don't look at it properly. And this is what the Buddha is trying to, and successfully does, explain here that it is absurd to connect the feeling with self-identity. So the reason we do that, though, he's also explaining that, and this is why he's choosing the feeling. Because we have that identity idea, we have to consider it. Everybody has this identity idea. So we consider that. And we only have one thing that we cons can consider it with, and that's the four mental aggregates. There's nothing else that we can consider the me with. There's nothing else. And then, of course, that presupposes we have already given up the idea that we're the body. If we haven't given that up, then, of course, we've got five. 
So if we still believe that we are the body, then, then we've got five. But if we no longer believe that, if we've opened the zipper often enough, taken the bits and pieces out often enough, have looked at them over and over again and decided that couldn't possibly be me. It's messy, it's not even nice, it doesn't have any shape or form, it's necessary to be alive, but there's no me sitting in all this mess, then we have four left. And this is probably what most people have. We have the four aggregates. There's nothing else we can relate to. We have the sense consciousness, we have feeling, perception, and mental formation. So that is our consideration. And this consideration, this is the word that the Buddha uses, consideration of self. It gives us this idea, there's somebody there. And then, having had that idea, then we now need to support that. Because although we have a definite idea, which is together with a feeling, of course, of a person, of a self, of a me, this identity is elusive. We can't put our finger on it. And because we can't put our finger on it, because it seems to be not only changing, but it seems to be somewhat fluid. It doesn't seem to be something that is really graspable. So we don't like that at all, because humanity wants to make permanent what's impermanent and always looks at dukkha as sukha and sukha as dukkha. So in order to get this a little more solid, we need a description of the self. So obviously we do that. We describe ourselves. And we have all sorts of descriptions. I'm a person that's easily depressed. I'm a person that's easily hateful. I'm somebody who uh, is very nice and can get along with people splendidly. Or I'm very shy. Or uh, I often get angry. Or I'm very fearful. Or I had this horrible thing happen to me, so I'm uh, angry forever after. Whatever it is, We've got storylines galore, and we believe them all. That's the worst of it. Storylines are okay if we remember that they're storylines. I mean, a Disney movie is fine. Nobody believes that this is really what's happening. But if we think that this is true, then, of course, we're in trouble. And this is what we're doing with our storylines. We really believe them, and we use them, and we live our life accordingly. So I'm shy, so I'm shy forever. So I'm depressed, so I'm depressed forever. Nobody is this or that forever. But since we renew the storyline over and over again, and we've got other identifications, of course, our jobs, our uh, family status, our age, our bank account, uh, anything at all, our university training or lack of training, whatever it may be, it's all in there. And it all gets into a description of self. Now with this, we also have what the Buddha calls this personality view. Now, the personality view is one of the ten fetters, the ten fetters which bind us to the round of samsara. Obviously, I've already mentioned me and the self many times, but this is its technical name. That's the personality view. It's very often in Pali just called ditti, which means view. Having a view is never right. And this one is the wrongest of them all. And this personality view 
has this description in it, this, uh, this storyline, this ident- identification, which has happened because we need something to fasten, something to make solid. If we just look at this identity of which we are totally sure that it's there, we can't do anything with it. So this is what happens. So then we have personality view. Now, personality view is the one that makes everything else happen. That's the wrongest view of them all. And the first step on the Noble Eightfold Pass is right view. And it has many uh, implications, which I won't go into right now. But this personality view is the one that gets shaken only when we take our first step beyond the threshold of worldling into the realm of the noble ones. That first step beyond that threshold, which is called stream entry, and which I will detail in um, maybe later or at another time, gives us the opportunity to see for ourselves, experience for ourselves, that this personality view is a mistaken view. And because we have certain results from that, we know. So this whole business of the aggregates, and I'm only now using the mental aggregates, because although we do identify with the body, logically we don't really. Anybody will say, no, I'm I'm not the body. But, so we'll use the four aggregates of mind. With that description and identification, we have the personality view, which we need to shake. Because the personality view is based on an illusion, on an imagination, on something which gives us no end of trouble, and is constantly in need of reinforcement. It never stays around in one solid lump. It always needs to be reinforced. That's why we want to be appreciated, understood, loved, cared for, considered, accepted, and all the rest of it. And if somebody doesn't do that, then, of course, we don't like that person. Instead of recognizing the fact that our I and our the self-view is just not being supported for a moment. And so we search for people who do support that. And if we find somebody who is constantly doing that, that's really lucky. Or should I say unlucky? (laughs) Maybe unlucky. Now the personality view is also called the rope that binds us to samsara. We're stuck on samsara with that personality view. Not only are we stuck to samsara, we're stuck to dukkha. We want something whatever it may be, and we're stuck in that dukkha. And then we have also, together with the uh, personality view, we have the speculative view, and that concerns what's going to happen to me. When I get old, will I have enough money? Will there be somebody to take care of me? Will I find a nice place to live? Will I, when I die, will I have a lot of pain? Will I get sick or won't I get sick? And all those things which revolve around this 
personality. And by doing that, obviously, not only does one have worries, which are not pleasant in the first place, but one has far more. One has a boundary, a limitation, which concerns always me. And if I can remind you, if you have a look at one of the satellite pictures, you can see that this whole globe is a speck of dust in the universe. And then to be concerned with this one person called me, it seems a little absurd, doesn't it? A speck of dust sitting on a speck of dust. And our mind is capable to encompass the whole of the universe and more. But we've got to let go. So what we're doing with this speculation is how it's, what is going to happen to me. Now, obviously, me is definitely going to disappear. There's no way we can make it remain here. It's going to lie either six foot underground or it's going to be cremated. That's a guarantee. Should anybody be in any doubt about it, I'd be happy to give a written guarantee. <laughs> so how much time from now till then? What do I have to really worry about? So this speculative view is called the knots that tie the rope and this rope which ties us to samsara. So we have the knots and the rope. These are uh, terms which are used quite often. And that's why I'm repeating them to you, because you may find them in books and you'll know immediately what's said. Not only that, but having a picture in, in a description very often helps to see it a little more clearly. Because not only does it tie us to samsara, so what? Birth and death and the round and the over, all, all the time. But worry ties me today. Today's worry ties me to tomorrow's worry. And that one ties me to the day after tomorrow worry. And then maybe the stock market crashes. And then what? And then the whole thing goes absurd. So that whole thing that we are looking at is based on the fact that we are thinking there is some identity and feeling it. And with that thinking and feeling, we're always asking the wrong questions. Such as, well, yeah, but who is meditating? And uh, who is having loving kindness? And who can get enlightened? And uh, who understands all this? These are all the wrong questions. Because the answer is always me. And I've had that answer for all decades of this life and all past lives. Hundreds and thousands of them. Who is this? Me. There's no other answer. The question which needs to be asked and which is a practice point, and I'm always underlining the practice points, is how did this come to be? What is the condition for this? How did it come to be? That's the proper answer, and that is then also going to give us a little more insight. So how does the worry come to be about my future and my... Um, being having enough money and all the rest of it that comes to be because I think I am most important. Okay, how did that come to be? Because I have a view of myself as being an identity. 
How did that come to be? Because I am believing that my feelings that arise are mine and that there's somebody owning them, namely me. So now I've given you a dependent arising which leads to personality view and speculative view. Now we've come back to the ground, namely the feeling. I told you already that the Buddha has picked out feeling as one of the aggregates to describe the consideration of self because it's a very important one. Not only is it at the threshold between the contacts that we make all the time and the craving which arises and keeps us in samsara, but it is also that which we live by. We all live according to the feeling ambience in here. If we feel disgruntled, we live disgruntled. If we feel depressed, we live depressed. If we feel joyful, we live joyful. We can't do it any other way. How else could we do it? So feeling is the base on which everything is happening. That's why he's picking this out. And having come back to that now, we have to look again that we have three kinds of feelings and that we grab at them all. They're all mine. And that's why we react. But since each one disappears to give room to another one, could we then say that each time one disappears and give rise to another one, that the me has disappeared as a certain entity and arises as a new one? Never occurs to us to say a thing like that, but that would be logical, wouldn't it? So the pleasant feeling has disappeared, so the pleasant me is gone, and now the painful feeling arises, so we've got a painful me. And then that one goes away, and a neutral feeling arises, so we've got a neutral me. So we already have three me's. But that's not the end of it. Because we have six different sense contacts. And we can have three different feelings in each of the sense contacts. So we've got 18 different me's already. And then, of course, the Abhidhamma goes much further than that. It says like this. It says we have those in the past, in the present, and the future. So that's three times 18, right? So that's 56. 54, sorry. <laughs> and then the Abhidhamma goes further than that and says that with those 54 kinds of different feelings, which are the three different kinds in the six different sense contexts in the past, present, future, which comes to 54, we can also have the reaction of either wanting or rejecting. And so we have 108 different feelings and cravings. And that's 108 is mentioned in the Abhidhamma as our base for seeing ourselves in 108 me's. But that's not enough, of course. We can go this much further. But it, I think you can see already how absurd it is. I mean, there's no need to go any further with this, is there? Let's stick to the first three. Pleasant, painful, and neutral. Coming from six different sense contacts. That's enough, huh? 18. So we've got 18 me's. Now, that is our feeling that we're grabbing at. And with that, when we say that this is mine, we are have then these two different kinds of reactions. 
But not only that is happening, but every time a feeling disappears and there's not an immediate renewal of another one, where's the me gone? What's it doing? Obviously, it's taking a holiday. And what happens at night when we're really deeply asleep and we are not aware of feelings? So the me is what? So we've got a sleeping me. And then we have a dreaming me. And then we have a waking up me. And so and a going to bed me. So we've got all those four already. We've got to add to that. We can go on and on and on. We can add to it. Because every time something happens, whatever it may be, it's always me. No matter what it is, even if it's most unpleasant. We grab it and say, me. Even if somebody does a terrible thing to us, it's happening to me. And so, of course, we have to react. And with all that, we continue on that same level and can't get beyond it. But instead of asking ourselves whether that is really me or not, we need to look at the arising of it. How does it arise? Always through contact. No other way. That's always the condition for it. So then we must be obviously also thinking that our Eye contact, ear contact, taste contact, touch contact, smell contact, mind contact. It's also me. So then we have another lot that starts all over again. Because if the feeling that comes from it is me, then obviously the contact's got to be me. Otherwise it would be arising out of nowhere, the me. So we can't do that. It can't just arise out of nowhere. So when we have feeling as self, the Buddha takes those as his... Um, explanations, the not only that it is the three different kinds, but also the arising and ceasing of it, which has to be taken into account. And because this is a very important aspect, I've already told you, please look at the impermanence of the feelings which you have, of the sensations which you have, and obviously of the thoughts which you have. And then, as on the material basis, the breath. But if we look at, Im at impermanence of our own feelings, and that we could do that as a more one-pointed impermanence uh, object, we will see that there's nothing static, and it's not even continual. We're always led astray by the continuity of it all. The breath continues all the time, so we think it's always there. Obviously, it isn't. It stops and starts something new. So that's very, very misleading. And also, our body seems to be always there. So that's also misleading us into thinking that there is some solid entity. But feelings are not always there. We always have to make contact first, and we don't always make contact. So as particularly, for instance, if we sleep, we don't make contact. And there are many occasions when feelings interrupt it. And we need to have a look at that. And when it's interrupted, the continuity being interrupted, it's much easier to see that this is all just a mental formation 
to say this is me. There is an identity and entity. Now, people in general are afraid to let go of me. Why? Almost like cancelling a life insurance policy. But actually, what one gets is one would save a lot of money and one would die at exactly the same time, whether one has it or not. And here, if we let go of this idea of me, we feel as if we're losing a security support, like a security blanket. But we've gone past that, haven't we? We're a little more mature. We don't really need a security blanket anymore. Letting go of this idea of me is the greatest relief that anyone can experience. It's the greatest and most wonderful experience that anyone can ever have. It is the losing of the pressure of that like a monkey sitting on one's neck, constantly pushing one to either do this or get that or be this way or have that. Nothing. There's nobody there has got to be pushed. And that enormous relief and release is our gateway to total liberation. So the fear of letting go is due to the fact that, first of all, one doesn't know what one's going to get, the fear of the unknown, but it is also this feeling of, well, if I haven't got that, what have I got? I'm going to be in limbo. No, I could be in limbo, but the non-I cannot be in limbo. And that's the big difference. There is nobody to be in limbo. I, of course, yes, but that's exactly what we're letting go of. So then, this is feeling as self. I'm, it's me, feelings. So then we have the self distinct from feeling, but subject to feeling. And with that, the Buddha says this, Ananda, the one who says, feeling is not myself, but myself is not without experience of feeling. Myself feels, for myself is subject to feeling. He should be asked, friend, if feeling were to cease absolutely and utterly without remainder, then in the complete absence of feeling, with the cessation of feeling, could the idea I am this occur there? So what he's saying here is actually the fact that if we didn't feel self, we wouldn't know I am. So it's not possible to say that the self is distinct from feeling, but has, and there are feelings arising which it's subject to. In other words, putting the feeling outside of oneself. If the feeling is outside of oneself and not coming in as self, we would never think of ourselves as self. So this is also not possible. This is the other thing that he uh, denies such a thing as being possible. And then the other one is that there is no, the self has no feelings. In other words, we agree to the fact that we can't be 108 different feelings, so we let go and say, okay, I'm not the feeling. Just like we have let go and say, okay, I'm not the body. Because every morning when we get up, we know exactly who's getting up out of bed, getting dressed, washed, and all the rest of it. We, we just agree logically, okay, I'm not the body. Here we can do that. We can say, okay, I'm not the feeling. If that's what you like, I'm not the feeling. 
not possible. Because if I wasn't the feeling, I wouldn't feel I am again. So that, again, is not possible to say. These are just sort of um, mind and mental formations which don't help us and don't bring us to that state of liberation. But what we have to look at are the conditions for feeling. Well, the first one is impermanent. I've already said that. I mean, obviously it arises and ceases. How can there be a me in there? The second one, the second condition is that it's conditioned. It has to have contact. So we know that. Now check it out. Is it true? Does it have to have contact? Or can you have feeling without that? Just see. Mind contact is also contact. Okay? And the third, the third is that it has arisen independence of something. So if that is me, then I am dependent. I am dependent on the arising of feeling. Well, do we think like that? Do we feel like that? Am I dependent upon the arising of feeling? We think the other way around. I am here, that's why, that's why these feelings come. And then we think, ah, oh, yes, there's been somebody or something that has done that to me, so that's why it has arisen. Or I've done it myself because I've got concentrated in the jhanas. But the rest of the stuff, we think it's somebody's did it out there. So, but in actual fact, that's not the case at all. It has dependently arisen. So then we can say, has the self dependently arisen? And here the Buddha says, that this is obviously absurd because there's no way that one can see that an impermanent and conditioned self is not a self at all, but a contradiction in terms. So we don't think that we are an impermanent self. We think, yes, the body is going to die, but there's something there that is a self. And conditioned, as long as we really know that this is nothing but a condition which has dependently arisen, then we would never think that there's a self there because it's just a result of a condition. This is the most important aspect of dependent arising, that everything has cause, condition, and result. And if we say the result is called me, it's no longer the me that we actually feel that identity inside. When we say the result is a person that has mind and body and I go around calling it me, that's fine. The Tathagata, the Buddha also talked about himself as I did this and I did that. But he never had that feeling inside of a me person. Is that clear? <laughs> sort of, huh? Okay, so we have that as a condition. They're dependently arisen. Now, the next thing is that it's subject to destruction, the feeling. So what about the me? Is that subject to destruction along with the feeling? Obviously, it must disappear somehow or other. So then how do we keep it going, this me? By constantly supporting it again and again. It's really weird what we do. And then, obviously, feelings fall away, disappear, 
go away, fall away. Me falls away. Hmm? Then, we, of course, we resurrect it, naturally. But we can't resurrect it with feeling. We have to first make contact again. And then we can resurrect it with feeling. And in order to make contact, of course, we have to use all the senses that we have. So then, feelings don't just fall away, they fade away. You must have noticed that. Sometimes when one has an unpleasant feeling, it just fades away. It doesn't just go bing and gone. I mean, it would be nice if it did, but it just doesn't. It fades away. So the me is fading away. We never consider that. Never. On, on the contrary, when the unpleasant feeling goes away, we sit there and we rejoice and say, gee, I'm clever, that's great. Now the unpleasant feeling is gone. Wonderful. And then it comes back and says, oh... I'm having this terrible, unpleasant feeling. And we react and react and react. But we don't watch it, that the fading away of the feeling actually means that this me idea should be fading away with it. But it isn't. Not at all. It stays right where it is. And then, of course, it ceases altogether. Any kind of feeling goes away completely in order to have a new one arise, but it just goes away. But we never consider the fact that the me has gone away at that time. We just, if it's unpleasant, we're very happy, and if it's pleasant, we're very unhappy. So at that time, the me is designed to be happy or unhappy. So it's not considering a sensation, it's considering an emotion. So it has this emotional feeling, and it identifies with that. So our whole identification system that we have is based on these seven conditions. And this is what we need to investigate. This is a very important investigation, contemplation. We can use any of the seven conditions, all of them. Impermanence is synonymous with ceasing. Well, what arises has to cease, right? The... Uh, Conditioned is what's the cause for it, which is synonymous with dependently arisen. Buddha goes in great detail on these things in order to make himself quite clear because it is something which goes totally against our grain. But it doesn't really go against our wishes. It just goes against our preconceived views, that's all. We would like to be blissful, peaceful, at ease, no problems. Everybody would love that. In order to do that, we have to get rid of this me idea. So we'd love that. But the preconceived views and opinions are of such strength that the mind very often cannot even latch on to the truth of depend arising. So we have the impermanence, which is equivalent to ceasing. We have the conditioned feeling, which is equivalent to dependent arising ceasing. We have the fading and the falling away, which is also equivalent to impermanence and ceasing. So we can see that sometimes it falls off and very often it just fades. It doesn't just go away, it sort of slowly goes away. And that it's subject to destruction, well, obviously, that there's all the same thing. It's subject to falling away and it's very important to investigate whether we can have any foothold on that me idea when we investigate our feelings that way 
And again, we will see that whether we are aware of our feelings or not, and some people do run around with their head cut off here, we live by them, whether we know them or not. It doesn't matter. They are always there. And they are always telling us, I am. So then, we have these um, conditions, which is an, an important aspect of uh, investigation. And here is another little statement by the Buddha, which I like to read to you. It's from a different, sutta, different discourse. If anyone should say, feeling is self, that's not tenable, for an arising and a falling away of feeling are discerned. Since it's arising and falling away are discerned, the consequence would follow, myself arises and falls away. Therefore, it is not tenable to say, feeling is self. Thus, feeling is not self. So again, he puts the emphasis on arising and ceasing. And this is an important aspect of, of the whole matter. He also puts an uh, emphasis on the fact that the impermanent and conditioned self cannot possibly be considered me, and that this is our door to liberation. This particular understanding is the doorway to liberation. And in our whole feeling aspect, if we didn't have that identification and attachment to our feelings, if that wasn't there, we could live with equanimity. Now, equanimity does not mean that we suppress anything. It means that it's no longer of any real stinging or of any real touching. So if people were to abuse one, and one has seen that there's nothing in there that can be abused, what's the difference? If one knows that none of the aggregates can actually be me, and then can realize that conditions are the causes for the arising of a person, and the conditions we've already talked about, the getting born is the condition that we start with because there's this craving to be. And then we realize that all these other conditions are nothing but the links in the same chain. Then we no longer have to relate to ourselves on this level of personality, identity, safeguarding and securing. As long as we safeguard and secure the me, which in turn safeguards and secures the things, we are putting chains around ourselves. And those are the fetters. Now I said earlier that I will describe uh, that um, stream entry a little more detailed when we get rid of the first three fetters. And it seems to fit in here. The fetters that bind us are ten, and the last five are only um, removed for the enlightened one, at enlightenment. But one has to start with removing the first three. And of those three, this personality view is the most damaging. 
the most insidious, the most difficult, and the one that keeps us in those fetters, in those chains. This personality view can be, of course, approached also with, ah, that's very good, there's no self there, but how am I going to live in the world? The me has to live in the world the way the world lives. But as soon as there is that absolute understanding that there's nothing at all that can be static, everything is flowing and changing, and that there is no personality embedded in feeling, from that moment on, the world is just another aspect of the whole stage that this play is being played upon. And sometimes that costume is worn and then another costume. And sometimes the backdrop is quite pretty and other times it isn't. But what else is there? So the me has to live in the world the way the world lives and has to comply with all the things that go on there. And one can loosen oneself a little bit by doing a few little different things, just such like meditating. That's a little bit getting up from the world. You know, my neighbors don't do that. My relative thinks I'm, think I'm crazy. Okay. But as long as the me is there, the world is there. What's the difference? It's the same thing. So the me is meditating. It doesn't like uh, everything that goes on in the world, so meditation is going to do something different. But as long as me is meditating... We've got to do everything that the world demands. So the personality view keeps us there. But the minute we see from dependent arising, and there'll be more of this dependent arising going on, that nothing is solidly in the world which doesn't have a cause and a condition, and that the me-thought has the condition the cause of sense contact and then feeling which we grab onto and say hello I found it that's me and because I feel like this every time this contact arises I am a lover of classical music and that's me and there I've got a nice me and then of course I've got another one that's not so nice but uh, we don't talk about that one so much it's not so pleasant. And until then, we are put to jhanas, which are worldlings. Having had that experience, we become the uh, uh, lowest grade of noble ones. And it is an experience where there's absolutely nothing happening, which is one mind moment. But because it is an experience where, in prior to that happening of nothing, there's a total understanding and willingness to give up this identity, entity, personality view and become just that conditioned arising. That mind moment has an enormous impact. It's called the path moment. And after the path moment comes the fruit moment. These are technical terms well worthwhile knowing because it makes explanations so much easier. We know what we're talking about. It's um, in Pali, Magga, 
the path and the food is Pala. Maga is M-A-G-G-A and Pala, P-H-A-L-A. Maga, Pala, path and fruit. This is what one meditates for. In case one was wondering why, that's what one meditates for, for path and fruit. And there are many steps on the way to take. Eight steps of calm and about 12 steps of insight. Depend arising takes us right to insight. It talks about nothing except insight. At the very end, it talks about the meditative absorptions, but only as uh, showing the means. The whole thing is geared towards losing, losing this personality view. And that moment, then, that moment of nothingness, is followed by the fruit moment, which, because the moment has had such impact, is one, one could say, not only of relief and release, but bliss. And it's a totally different, no, it's a somewhat different feeling from even the uh, second jhana or any of the other jhanas. The second one particularly is the bliss one, the joy one, but this one has a different feel about it. And from that moment on, having experienced that, the wrong view of self can never rise again the wrong feeling of self is still there. And because of that, the stream enterer is still having problems. He or she still wants this and rejects that because that feeling of self is not gone. The view is gone. And so what is necessary for the stream enterer to do is to re-arouse that understanding that he or she had at the fruit moment, that there isn't anybody there. It's all just happening. And that happens in the fruit moment, because the fruit moment describes the past moment. The past moment, nothing happens. So then, bringing that up again and again helps, of course, the stream enterer not only to live more at ease, because he can help himself not to have that many reactions, but it also helps to go to the next step. The stream enterer usually, one could say always, is determined to get to the next step because now can see that there's nothing else to do in order to get rid of dukkha. Everything else is dukkha because there's a constant reaction to feeling. Now I feel all right, so I'm fine. But the minute later, I don't. If I remember something nasty, I feel terrible. If I remember that I'm going to have to look after my old age, I feel worried. Constantly something going on. And the Srimendra, having had the experience of nothing going on, knows that that needs to be done because it's such a difference. It's such an enormous difference. Constantly something going on or absolutely nothing going on. That's what peacefulness is all about. And that's why the world really doesn't know what peace is. They think the United Nations can make it. I mean, that's a hope and a prayer. We've got to make it. We've got to make it in here. And that's where it's happening. So the stream entry has many advantages. First of all, definitely determined to get to the next step. Can't stop practicing because knows the difference. 
Secondly, rearousing the fruit moment can come back to that feeling that there's nobody there, only conditions arising and ceasing, and therefore doesn't have to react to every feeling. Very often it can just be at ease. What is also said that one of the advantages of a stream is he or she wouldn't break any of the five precepts. Um, I will talk about them again at the end. And has accepted the Buddha as the teacher wholeheartedly because skeptical doubt disappears. Skeptical doubt is one of the uh, ten fetters. It's the one where one um, is oscillating and fickle. This teacher or that one? He knows better, she knows better. Maybe I should do something else. Maybe I should go to university. Maybe I should meditate. Maybe this, maybe that. Maybe this is true. Maybe the Buddha knows. Maybe he was enlightened. Maybe the Pali Canon is true. Maybe the Pali Canon is adulterated. Maybe this, maybe that. The mind being a magician, there's no end of possibilities that can be aroused in the mind. Maybe there's, um, one hasn't had all these thoughts, but some of them come up. Maybe I should um, do more meditation. Maybe I should do less meditation. Maybe the people around me disturb me. Maybe I can't do it alone. I mean, any number of possibilities. Nothing like that ever happens again to the Srimantra. The Buddha taught the truth, and I know how to follow it. Period. Finished. And that's such a relief. One doesn't come up with absurd justifications. Why to live here and not there? Why to do this and not that? All those absurd justifications all drop away because skeptical doubt has dropped away. Why has it dropped away? Because one has experienced it oneself. It's the only way to do it. One has to experience it oneself. It's a great help. So that's the other fetter that we lose. And then this belief in observances, that how to do certain things, which method is the best? Only mine, the one I'm using, that's the best one. That's a very prevalent notion. Or the method that I heard about or read about or anything at all. Only that which uh, I can handle or whatever it may be. This attachment to a certain way. Now, rituals and observances are, of course, also in our daily lives, not strictly only in meditation, but there they also are of a difficulty. This is the third fetter that we lose. Interesting part of this is that hate and greed are not even addressed. Now, you can imagine having become a noble one and hate and greed is not addressed, but they become much less because of the fact that the person can get back into that fruit experience in memory, not as strong as it was, but in memory, and therefore doesn't have to react to everything. So they do become uh, diminished. They become less hate and greed. They are by no means uh, eliminated. And actually they're only eliminated at one step before full enlightenment. So we've got a fair bit to go. But it also tells us something. Why the world is the way it is and why it's going to stay that way. It doesn't matter which political party you elect. It's going to stay this way. Hate and greed are there to stay 
until one becomes a non-returner. And this is the way the world is. And that is another enormously important insight. Because there's no use trying to find some little corner in the world where there is no hate and greed. We've got it inside. It's in there. It's constantly in there. It's a constant until we do these steps. And the first step to take is to investigate feeling. One of the first steps. Investigate. Why do I think it's mine? Why do I react to it? Why do I really have that kind of feeling inside that this must be so? Investigate it in the way of those seven conditions which are actually, truthfully speaking, only three. They are the main, these three main conditions are the impermanence and they are the dependent arising, the arisen, arising of conditional arising, that it has a condition which makes it arise. And then the other one, which is the impermanence, where you look at this fading and ceasing. So this is all that's necessary to look at. And as we look at that more and more, in a situation such as this, where we not only have time, but also the quiet to look at it, it must eventually come to the fore that none of that could possibly have a me person sitting in it. And if the feeling hasn't got a me person sitting in it, then what has a me person sitting in it? Now, contact is a condition, the sense contact. So what, what has the me person sitting in it? The one who's labeling it, the one who's saying, ah, they, uh, this is a nice feeling and this is not a nice feeling? Well, that one is in constant flux, isn't it? It's constantly busy doing something else. And, of course, the one who's reacting is the one who's having the problems. So we don't want to be that one, do we? We don't want to be the mental volitional formation who's constantly having problems. So which one do we want to be? Try to find one and see whether that one is really off. A reality it can be related to as an identity and doesn't need any kind of support system nor does it need a description is it something that is there without description which is really its greatest fault the me always needs a description this is very interesting the identity feeling is there but you have to describe in order to make it real. So this is a very important uh, investigation and will help to get an inkling what it means to become liberated, to become free, to actually get rid of dukkha once and for all. The more we cling, the less we can do it. So that might be enough on that particular point. It's a very important point, it's a very interesting point, and it's one on which the Buddha had enormous number of things to say, so maybe I will even have to return to it at some other stage. But now is the time you can ask some questions. Yes.
feeling of non-self goes away at full enlightenment, correct? Feeling of self. I mean, the feeling of self. Mm-hmm. But the the mistaken view, the, the intellectual mm-hmm. view goes away at, at three entry. That's right. Actually, you could say that for the the non-returner, no, you can't say he still feels... For the non-returner to said that the self is still clinging to him or her like the scent aroma is clinging to the flower. So it's only the arahant that has no absolute nothing, no feeling at all. But the intellectual understanding goes away at stream entry, and the help that the stream entry has is to re-arouse the fruit moment's experience, which was, of course, without the self, and therefore can help them not to react so much. Yes. More though than intellectual disappearance is dream entry, wouldn't it? If you at the moment of that's also wrongly said. Uh, you don't realize you don't exist. Oh. <laughs> um, you exist. I mean, you can see that. All you have to do is look and see it. You exist, don't you? Okay. But you're existing with a mental delusion of a me. So it's not that existence is denied. It's a delusion that we get rid of. Okay? So at the time of stream entry, it's an experience. That is an experience. But the stream entry cannot feel that constantly because hate and greed has not been eliminated. So he knows, but he can't feel it. bring back the remembrance of the fruit moment and can feel it again. It's the same like, for instance, you might know very well that you should love everybody. You know it, but can you feel it all the time? The same thing. You know very well, you know. Everybody, I love, I love everybody. And who's everybody, you know? You come up against somebody who's, you know, well, not that one. <laughs> So you know it, but you don't feel it. Yes. What do you lose at the second stage, then? Sorry? What do you lose? Oh, what do you lose? Yes, yes, of course. Um, at the second, uh, this is a once returner, uh, hate and greed get sort of halved. And uh, hate becomes uh, irritation, and greed becomes preference. So um, it, it's, it's very nice, actually, because it's, uh, it's not, um, um, it's mild. It's mild and it's, uh, uh, it's quite possible to let go, possible to let go. But the irritation still arises and the preferences still arise. They're still there. And, uh, of course, it's a big change from before. So at non-returner it goes. But the self is still not gone at non-returner. Not no, quite. A bit more. Oh, yes. Yes, quite a bit more. But not completely. Yes. The non-returner still hankers after rebirth in either the fine material or the immaterial realms where there's no dukkha. And even though he or she might say, oh, of course not. Why? I mean, why should one want to be reborn there? Actually, that, that kind of thought does come back in the mind because there's still that little bit of me in there. That only goes completely when there's nothing left. 
I mean, nothing, no, nobody there to be reborn then. No? So it's a, it's a um, very well-defined pathway. It's a absolutely uh, precisely um, outlined. There's no doubt what to do. But one has to also, of course, have to have the willingness to do it. Yes. Yeah. To get into the string entry, does it take all eight jhanas? No. No. The Buddha said you can do it after any of them. But um, from personal experience, I would say that the first one is not really suitable. <laughs> but the uh, Buddha said one can do it after any of them. Maybe, but, uh, hmm? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Maybe you think after the first one that you're there. Yes, that's <laughs> that could be. <laughs> but the, the ones that are particularly suitable are four, five, six, and seven. They're particularly suitable. But in a discourse, I read it myself, he said, after any of them. Because the mind does become, I mean, they have to be very um, concentrated, of course. They mustn't have any thought in them. They must be really fully experienced. And the mind does become very quiet. So it's uh, theoretically possible. Yes. The personality being comes with us throughout all the lives, doesn't it? So that means it's really in It's not only that, it's also that it's being propounded and supported by everybody around you. Yeah. If you say to use the jhanas, well, at, at the op- this moment is opportune at the end of the fourth, fifth, and sixth, seventh jhana to experience fruit moment, or path moment, um, only occurring when there's absolutely no thought, then how can you actually use the, that, that jhana to propel the mind? The, the jhana is your preparation. The jhana is getting the mind ready. When you come out of jhana, that's when you do it. You can't do it in the jhana. So it's volitional. Of course. Of course it's volitional. Who would give up, who would give up self without volition? <coughs> You you use mental formation. You can't use ego. How can you use ego? What's the ego going to do for you? It's a lot of yes buts there, Mel. (laughs) 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 What is a contradiction? That you use your mental formation. Look, when you have a mental formation of hate, right, which is quite possible, which is quite a strong feeling, and then you propel your mind to say, no, I want to love. So you just change your mind. So your mental formation, which tells you it's you having the fifth jhana or whatever, right? You propel the mental formation to change around and say, I'm ready to give it up. I let go. I give it up completely. And then you can try. You change it around. It's as simple as that. What's a contradiction? You know, it works. 
Sorry, I don't understand that. The intention of me, the, I feel there's an intention of me that I'm looking at. No, no, you're doing it wrong. You're thinking it quite wrongly. You're, that's exactly what I was saying earlier. Uh, <laughs> the me <laughs> has to live in the world. What, you, what, the, what the determination and the volition is that happens at that time is I give up completely. I give up totally. I don't want to get anything. I give up and allow the mind to be totally still. I give up me and all thought and connection. I'm willing to be nothing. It's a very strong volition. And it's only possible not when it is a logical, uh, that's the first step, a logical determination. But there has to be an inner feeling that goes with it, which tells quite clearly that I give it up because it's all a wrong way of thinking. Unless one has seen that wrongness in it, one can't give it up. If I'm I, well, what am I going to give up? That's what you're saying. This is a contradiction. I'm I, how, am I, how can I give up I? But when you see it isn't, it's all wrong, it's nothing but depend arising, let it go. And that is then that determination it may, which may work. Is that clearer? Give it a go tomorrow. I mean, like, you know, trying to see, see yourself, and now that for, uh, is for everybody, um, valid for everybody. See oneself in the process of depend arising. It's an enormous help to get a, really a, a hang on it. What is this? Where am I in all this? It's nothing but depend arising. And because I'm thinking this, this is happening. Because I have birth and I have this and I have the next step, the next step. Everything that goes on within, look at it in the terms of depend arising or outside a tree or a house anything but specifically oneself and that helps enormously to see that there is um, a wrong view and willing to give up the wrong view is, is the first um, mental formation I'm willing to give up my wrong view but one has to first know that one has a wrong view. Right? Okay, anything else? Yes? Um, you said something about when one stream enters there, there's some feeling about the Buddha arises, some knowledge that... What about in traditions where... Um, what about what? Do people stream enter in other traditions? In other traditions? They, they wouldn't have followed this path mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have been called stream enterers. But it's, but it's still, it's, isn't it still something that happens in other traditions? Oh, definitely, mm -hmm. certainly. But you wouldn't call it a stream enterer. 
So a person who you would call a stream enterer would have done it on the Buddha's path because these are the terminology that is used on the Buddha's path and therefore would accept the Buddha as the uh, guiding light without any doubt. Sure, it's possible. As I mean, it's been done in Christianity, believe it or not. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Anything left of the question? Okay. Okay. Anything else? Yes. So skeptical doubt is with us until that time. Yes. Yes. But uh, don't let it disturb you. <laughs> see, if it's uh, if it's disturbing, you see, the same is like this. And I've said this before, but I like to make the analogy. Dukkha is. But don't suffer from it. Skeptical doubt is, but don't be disturbed by it. Just look at it and say, okay, skeptical doubt, never mind. Just get on with it. So dukkha is, but if you're suffering from it, that means one doesn't accept it. If one gets disturbed by skeptical doubt, one doesn't accept the fact that it is a general thing that people have. You know, people all have these ideas, but they know better because they've got personal views. It's not so much that I know better, but there may be something better around the corner. And this is part of the whole system of existence, including nature, um, proliferation, papancha in Pali. Because there's so much, which one am I going to have? You know, like if you go to a, a bakery, 25 different kinds of cake, which one am I going to have? You go and look at the eucalyptus, I was told that there are over 300 different kinds of eucalypts. I mean, who needs over 300 different kinds of eucalypts? Yes, yes, and, and, and they change bark too. Yes, that's the proliferation in nature, which shows us quite clearly also the proliferation in our own mind. And therefore, we are constantly faced with, ah, oh, man, maybe this one isn't the right one, maybe that one. Oh, no, not that one. Maybe this one. And so just accept it. That's the way it is. Skeptical doubt, proliferation. Okay, just get on with it. The same with Dukkha. Dukkha is, don't let it disturb you. Just get on with it. Because once one has stepped over that threshold, then, of course, the, um, the whole um, situation in the world becomes quite clear. Proliferation is part of craving. Why do we have so many different things that can be bought? Clothing. I mean, who knows what clothing to buy? Best thing is to not buy it. Because there's far too much of it. So it's the same with, uh, with skeptical doubt on, on other aspects. Huh? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
fill yourself with peacefulness in the knowledge that there's nothing that needs to be done, changed, achieved. There's no becoming. Just let peacefulness arise in your heart knowing that everything is as it is, as it should be. Now let that peace fill you from head to toe and surround you. Feeling at ease, not wanting anything at all. Now, think of the person sitting next to you. And let the peacefulness which you feel, with which you are surrounded, reach out and fill him or her with it. And now reach out to everyone here. Let the peacefulness from your heart enter into everyone's heart as your gift, filling everyone with it. Letting everyone share in this greatest of gifts.
Now think of your parents and let them share in the peacefulness that you have in your heart. Reach out to them. Fill them with that feeling of peacefulness and embrace them with it. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Let them share the peacefulness in your heart. Reach out to them with it. Try to let them feel it. Give it to them. Fill them with it. Embrace them with it. Think of your friends. Fill them with the peacefulness from your heart. Surround them with it. Give them this gift. Think of other people you know with whom you would like to share the peacefulness in your heart. Let them arise before your mind's eye. Fill them and embrace them with that feeling which contains acceptance, contentment, wishlessness,
shared with those people whom you would like to give this to as a gift. Now look at that peacefulness in your heart and see it as a strong and important force so that you open your heart as wide as you can and let it come out and go to people everywhere, filling them with peacefulness. First those that are near, around here in this area, and then further afield, watching the strength of peacefulness entering into the hearts of as many people as you can make possible. Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the calm and the serenity and tranquility that fills you from head to toe, surrounds you, embraces you. Protective, secure and safe.
May people everywhere have peacefulness in their hearts.